the jurisprudence as it exists today, as as we've suggested, um, both in um, the anti-discrimination rules themselves, uh, the national treatment and most favored nation treatment rules, in the general exceptions, uh, which relate to things like safety, protection of, of humans, um, uh, deceptive practices. And the security exceptions, they're all somewhat uncertain and they're all sensitive to the way that you design your measure. And, uh, and, and the hope is that the people in the United States government responsible for cybersecurity are working with the USTR uh, and trying to design their measure in a way that is most defensible. Welcome to episode 278 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we express here are not those of uh, the firm, our clients, our institutions, uh, or our relatives. Today, I'm going to be interviewing uh, uh, Joel Trackman, who's a professor of international law and director of the LLM program in international law at Fletcher School at Tufts University. And uh, I'm joined by Claire Schachter, who uh, uh, does a lot of international trade law here at our Washington office. I'm also joined for the news roundup by Paul Rosenzweig, who's the founder of Red Branch Consulting. Senior Fellow at R Street, former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy at DHS. Paul, great to have you here. Always a pleasure, Stuart. And uh, Mark McCarthy, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy at Georgetown University and somebody I've known for, wow, 30 years, huh? Don't go there. Okay. Uh, Delighted to be here. It's great to have you here. <laughs> and finally, uh, uh, on Skype, Klon uh, Kitchen, who's a senior research fellow for science, technology, and national security at the Heritage Foundation. Klon, good to have you. Always good to be here. Okay. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host of today's program and chief provocateur. Uh, let's start with some actual law. Uh, the Ninth Circuit has upheld scraping of websites against a claim that it violates the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, Paul, uh, what did the uh, court hold and how significant is it? I'll answer the second question first. I think it is actually a fairly significant decision, if only because the Ninth Circuit seems to have a corner on the market for decisions relating to innovative tech, in large part because the Va Silicon Valley is yeah, is in the is in is in the. Um, it's really the Northern District of California that has those exactly, Valley, and yeah. so and so uh, so any decision like this that seems to be relatively thoughtful and well put together, is likely to resonate around the rest of the country in the same way that decisions about, you know, uh, Wall Street from the Second Circuit kind of resonate about how we how we look at uh, the securities markets and equities and things like that. The CFAA has long prohibited unauthorized access to uh, protected computers or access in excess of authorization. And the question has for the last, well, since it was written, but certainly for the last 10 years when, when web-based uh, utilities have become famous, what does that mean to be in excess of authorization or, un, or unauthorized access? And fundamentally, there have been two views about this law. 
One is that authorization is defined essentially by technical means. If you can't do it without breaking through something or or spoofing or something, guessing a password, guessing a password, then you are then that's unauthorized access. And anything that you can do technically that doesn't require you to spoof that or break that or or circumvent that control is authorized. The other view has all along been that access was defined not by uh, technical means, but by technical means plus permissions and, and contractual obligations and expressed authorizations. So, so here, for example, if a company says you can't scrape the personal information of the people who we attract to our website, in this case, LinkedIn, if, with, if LinkedIn says you're, we prohibit you from doing that, but they don't implement the technical means to prevent you from scraping that information, are you in violation of the CFAA or not? If you accept the contractual, cultural, moral obligation idea? The answer is yes. If you think that technical means are the definition, the answer is no. And, this, and the Ninth Circuit came down pretty squarely on the side of technical means. If you can do it without breaking something, it's not unauthorized. The definition of unauthorized is limited to that which is technically impossible to do. So that means that companies like LinkedIn that are going to try, that are trying to protect uh, the uniqueness of their information or their or their uh, product are going to need to implement more stringent technical limitations on how people can pull information from the website in an automated way as as HiQ did. And so I think it's really quite significant because it comes down squarely on the question of intent being defined only by that which is possible, not that which people mean to do. And that really doesn't strike me as necessarily right. You know, intent is, 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 is more than that, but at least it's a clear answer. So the, the Ninth Circuit basically said the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act was designed to stop people who were hacking not to enforce your private rules about uh, access to your data. Exactly. And, and I'm not sure that that's right. I mean, in excess of authorization sounds like I can set my private rules in a cultural way, in a contractual way, or in a technical way, and yet they've limited it to the, it's only about hackers and hacking and violating technical requirements. So the CFAA, I've always thought, was a remarkably prescient bit of future proofing. They said, we can't tell you what it means to be a hacker in uh, 2019 here in the 1980s, uh, but we can say if you do something you're not authorized to do, that's probably bad. And, uh, and that's, so they built the entire structure on the foundation of were you authorized or were you not? And while that has held up more or less well, uh, nothing else that, that we wrote about computers 40 years ago is holding up particularly well, they, uh, uh, there are problems at the margin. And this is one of them. Does authorization what you write down for rules or is it something that is enforced by the mechanics of your system? And especially, I think, because we've reached a point where the sophistication of systems that are able to extract information from networks, even uh, notwithstanding the lack of technical barriers, is pretty sophisticated and is probably beyond what the writers of the CFAA would have imagined. So... I'm I'm willing to predict that uh, 
this will that this ruling, if it does not go unchanged by legislation, will allow scrapers to extract so much uh, economic value from the people who really have earned it by accumulating it and creating the network, in this case, LinkedIn, but you can see any other tech company in the same situation, that eventually the Congress will get around to fixing this. Oh, I, I don't think they'll they'll need to. I'm guessing that uh, uh, Silicon Valley will weaponize privacy law and say, well, you're, you're shockingly violating the privacy of all these people by scraping their data and <coughs> using it in ways that they didn't anticipate when they gave it to us, the trusted company. Uh, so uh, my guess is that privacy uh, law will end up becoming the new tool for uh, for stopping scrapers. So will that be one of those rare instances in which privacy actually serves a, a, a function that you approve of, Stuart? Well, it will serve a function. It will, it will, as I always predict, serve a function that no one anticipated when they adopted the privacy rules because privacy rules never uh, turn out to serve the purpose you think they're going to. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I'm not going to get too hung up on, on that. But for this, if you are worried about the overweening power of big networks that are using network effects, the only way you're going to break up companies that rely on network effects in uh, the data world is if you force them to share that data. And that's going to be hard to square with privacy laws that we're starting to see. So I, 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 I'm, I'm of two minds. Uh, but California's... Privacy Act uh, is now more or less set in stone. The legislature has gone home, uh, and they ended up making only the most modest changes to the law. The law is the people who gambled that will pass the law, and then we can uh, amend it before 2020 lost. Uh, the uh, the law is not going to be amended. Uh, it's going to be a pretty demanding law and a pretty unclear law in many respects. Uh, that's not all the California legislature left behind in the punch bowl. Uh, Mark, uh, uh, they also said, you know, even California hates Silicon Valley. Uh, um, we hate Uber. We hate Lyft. Uh, we hate the gig economy, and we're going to do something about it. What did they do? So the, the thanks to it, the the legislature passed a bill that would appear to require Uber and the other ride-sharing companies to treat their workers as employees rather than independent contractors. But the bill largely codifies a 2018 California Supreme Court decision in Dynamix that, that held that an A-B test, which I'll, I'll get to in, in a moment, um, was the right one for determining uh, whether a worker was an employee. Uh, but it was limited to the wage and hour context. The new law expands the Dynamex decision uh, beyond wage and hours to other determinations of worker eligibility uh, for other benefits like paid sick leave or paid family leave or workers' compensation and unemployment insurance. It might raise Uber's costs by as much as 30%. Now, what's this A-B test? It requires companies that want to treat a worker as a contractor to prove that a worker is a independent and free to perform the services without company control, b that the services are outside the employer's usual course of business, and c that the contractor works independently in the same business as uh, the contracted work. Now, trucking firms, news publishers, cleaning companies, and software companies are all covered. And they could find it harder to legally define workers as independent contractors. This is not aimed just at the mm. economy. Uh, the law would exempt, however, other sectors, including beauty salons, 
doctor's offices, real estate offices, and, wait for it, lawyers, law firms. <laughs> but not the ride-sharing companies, despite their uh, appeals for an exception. Uh, now, Tony West, Uber's chief legal officer, said last week that Uber might be able to prevail on prong B of the independent contractor test. He said, several previous rulings have found that driver's work is outside the usual course of Uber's business, which is serving as a technology platform. Right, as a clearinghouse. As a clearinghouse. But of course, in order to classify drivers as contractors, Uber would also have to prove that it didn't direct and control them and that they typically operated an independent driving business outside their work. That they Uber. might or might not do, but they, the, the, the control, is they're toast on that. They have to show all three. Yeah. And so just showing one of them is not enough. The New York Times in an editorial over the weekend said the California courts are not likely to be sympathetic to this argument. By the way, the law added at the last minute a, a pretty tough enforcement mechanism. And this was in response to suggestions from Uber that they would simply continue to classify their workers as independent contractors and turn to arbitration or to the courts to respond to charges of misclassification. One, one by one case by one case. One case by one case. And historically, if workers yeah. thought they were misclassified, they went to court and they'd be on their own. But the bill allows the cities and the state attorney general to sue companies that don't comply. No, why not just let the taxi co companies sue them? <laughs> well, there you go. Now, now, now the, the, the companies aren't done fighting this bill. There's more. Uh, Uber and Lyft have pledged to spend up to $90 million to support a ballot initiative. Well, that's what, you, that's what it takes to, to get a ballot initiative. And, and, and it, would, it, would, it would essentially ex exempt them from the legislation. So uh, shades of Alistair McTaggart, who became famous uh, by sponsoring the California Privacy Ballot Initiative, which led, led to the California Consumer Privacy Act. Uber might be trying exactly the same thing, going over the heads of the legislators and to the voters directly and saying, uh, if we don't, don't pass kill, this, don't kill us. If, uh, if you don't pass this ballot initiative, it's the end of of ride sharing in California. Well, that worked for them city by city. Uh, most most cities, the, the 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 riders were in favor of the service, and the taxi cab companies and the right. cities were not, uh, and they rolled them. Uh, that was a different time. It was uh, a different time. Now, Gavin Newsom has promised that he would sign the bill if it came to him. Still, over the weekend. Because of this uh, residual uncertainty about where the people might be in something like this, he's apparently continuing discussions with the companies over a possible compromise. So the ball game's not over. Stay tuned. Oh, Stuart, can, yep. can we have a, a, a podcast uh, uh, competition? You know, what is the over-under for when Uber leaves California altogether over this? That's an interesting question. They, they easily could say, we're going to offer our services in 49 instead of 50 states. The, uh, the problem with that is that this is turning into a model for the other states. Well, yeah. Oregon. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, Oregon, but, New York. Uh, Washington. But New York, the, already, the, New York already has a minimum wage law that applies to the ride shares. We're going we're gonna to have a revolution of the millennials. Yeah. Right. Uber leaves San Francisco and all the people who have no cars and who've built their lives around Uber are going to have to wait for their cab to come. Yeah. <laughs> you, make, you make a great point. They, they, they may have so successfully undermined the existing cab companies that if they pull out, does not 
a series of viable cab companies to continue to provide service. So this may be their ace in the hole. All right. Or we should all be investing in medallion futures. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, Klan, uh, Treasury Department announced sanctions on a bunch of uh, North Korean uh, hacking groups, uh, uh, the Lazarus Group and, and others. Uh, you know, we've, we've sanctioned a lot of North Korean entities over hacking and other things. And uh, as far as I can see, it hasn't actually caused them any inconvenience. Is there a reason to think that this would be different? No. I mean, the short answer to your question is, is no, no one actually views this as being a silver bullet that will decisively change the, you know, this, the cybersecurity tide. Uh, I think there's good reason, though, to think that this is is part and partial of, um, of the U.S. really leaning into its attribution and naming and shaming strategy. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 part of a larger effort to kind of turn the screw on some of the key uh, APTs. And, you know, virtually every study and, and expert on this stuff would say that while these these types of actions, the sanctions, which I'll describe in a little more detail in a second, while they're not sufficient, they, they likely are necessary. And so I think in general, this story is a good news story, but no one should be, you know, betting their future on it. And, j- you know, just for the listeners in terms of what happened last week, Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control announced a series of sanctions against three North Korean APTs, the Lazarus Group, the Blue Noroff Group, and the uh, And Aerial Group. Now, Blue Noroff and And Aerial are actually subcomponents of the Lazarus Group. And as of last week, all three are now officially associated with North Korea's Reconnaissance General Bureau, which is their primary intelligence apparatus. Um, These APTs are responsible for a number of cyber attacks against critical infrastructure and international financial networks and all kinds of other targets, both inside the United States and elsewhere. And this includes the massive WannaCry uh, ransomware attack in 2017. That attack affected more than 150 countries and shut down more than 300,000 computers around the globe. So they they, um, they they did a lot of damage, uh, yep. and so this is this. If we could enforce this, it would be great. Let me ask a, a, an odd question because uh, I I do do some uh, uh, sanctions work. It's now prohibited to have, engage in transactions with these guys, and if I remember right, it's not a uh, um, a knowing or uh, um, a, a violation. It's just strict liability. So if they steal money from my bank account. Have I engaged in a prohibited transaction with uh, the Lazarus Group? Well, first of all, I think I'm the only non-lawyer on this podcast, so I'm going to be <laughs> well, You're, you're you safe guys. then. <laughs> That's right. But I don't know why that would be the case because that wasn't – you weren't you – weren't, if they're stealing from you, you're not knowingly engaging in that interaction. It's not something you intended. In fact, you, you didn't want that to happen. So, That's not only, usually a defense, uh, uh, but well, uh, in, in, I think in a case, I think they could find a way to say that's not a transaction because uh, – An uh, exchange you, of value. Yeah, exactly. Uh, interesting. Uh, just one, one additional kind of context to this because I think it's important is that th- this sanction effort actually falls into a broader – uh, kind of a group of actions where we're seeing the Department of Homeland Security and U.S. Cybercom increasingly sharing bad guy malware, including North Korean. So, for example, two weeks ago, U.S. Cybercom uploaded its largest batch yet of bad guy code to VirusTotal. And in this case, it was North Korean uh, malware called Hoplite, which is a, a type of Trojan that's been used to gather information on victims' operating systems and, and uses public SSL uh, certificates for secure, secure communications with the bad guys. And so, look, I I think you made the point at the very beginning. I think it's true. No one should suspect that we have 
decisively changed the tide because we've sanctioned a bunch of bad guys. I mean, most of these guys were never going to leave North Korea anyways. Uh, but I, I do think it's a part of a broader campaign of just trying to incrementally and, and deliberately tighten the screw on these guys and make it harder for them to operate. Well, and, and actually, you know, if they are buying uh, virtual machines uh, uh, or other infrastructure, uh, even in a disguised fashion on the market, uh, this may require uh, people who have been sort of looking the other way to to do more homework because they run the risk of being sanctioned for having engaged in transactions with the hackers. Uh, for a while, they were uh, the, the the North Koreans were using hotels in a variety of uh, non North Korean uh, countries, East Africa, Southeast Asia. For the very good reason uh, that the, for the same reason my kids uh, uh, come home is because the Wi-Fi is better, <laughs> uh, and uh, it, those hotels uh, are also at risk of sanctions for uh, doing business with people who shouldn't they shouldn't be doing business with. Yep. Yeah. The the other uh, thing that I wanted to ask you about because it was a really interesting story was a breakdown of what was really going on when the Russians attacked Ukraine's grid. You remember that there were all these stories about, oh, they were doing terrible things and the mouse was moving around or the cursor was moving around without me touching the mouse and uh, uh, they were shutting down stuff. And it turns out that uh, um, the Russians had something much worse in mind. Yeah, that's right. So it was two days before Christmas in 2016, and uh, Russian hackers went after the Ukrainian uh, national power grid. And so just before midnight, they threw all the city's circuit breakers open in a, in a transmission station north of Kiev. And that ultimately caused an unprecedented automated blackout uh, across a, a broad swath of, of the, the capital. The interesting thing about it is Ukrainian operators were able to get everything back up and running within an hour. And so that caused a lot of observers to wonder why the Russians would spend a, a cyber capability like that and, and plan it in the heart of the nation's power grid only to trigger a one-hour blackout. Well, like you just uh, indicated, uh, the, the researchers at Dragos, which is an industrial control system cybersecurity firm, uh, they're now saying that as they've kind of peeled back the onion, that Russia was actually trying to do something far more destructive. And that according to them, their actual objective was to cause lasting damage to uh, the Ukraine's infrastructure that would have caused power outages for weeks or perhaps even months. Now, you know, if this is true, uh, this would be only the third time that such a destructive piece of code has actually been found in the wild. You know, that would be Stuxnet in 2009 and then the Triton uh, attack in 2017 in the, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And so when, when, I, when I was looking through this and, and considering the report from Dragos, I was left with a couple of takeaways. First, uh, I'm in complete agreement with uh, General Michael Hayden, who likes to say that, you know, Stuxnet, we really crossed the cyber Rubicon, and now everyone's starting to get into the game. And it is undoubtedly true that more and more actors, especially nations, are preparing and are prepared to use truly destructive code. We're just seeing that more. Um, now, in the case of, of Russia, this may have be an indication of perhaps a lack of capability or, or maybe just a lack of execution in the moment. I don't think that there's reason to conclude that they're somehow strategically incapable, but for something, something just didn't go right here. Well, but, you have to, you do have to, so, you have to test all software and it's a little, it's harder to probably to test this kind of malware than, than others. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, you, you can only sandbox so much of it until you're actually in the in the real game. But, you know, in terms of the, the, the kind of expanding aperture on this, we've already seen our own similar operations expanding, American operations. So you'll remember just a few weeks ago that the U.S. reportedly took down Iranian missile and other targeting capabilities as a, you know, kind of proportional response to Tehran's hijacking of shipping vessels in the Strait of Hormuz and the shooting down of an American drone. And so I think the bottom line on all this is that the relatively low barriers to entry for these types of attacks and their perceived lack of risk mean more and more people are going to be willing to go down this road. That ultimately means that the risk of strategic miscalculation is growing, and one of these attacks is increasingly likely to set up a a type of rapid escalation that no one is really prepared for. Yeah, Uh, not unlike uh, the... uh... Uh, the Iranian, what appears to be the Iranian miscalculation that they could blame a drone and uh, uh, missile attack on Saudi Arabia on the Houthi rebels, uh, which is sort of coming apart. Uh, uh, but I think they thought, well, it's it's deniable and it's uh, high tech uh, and um, it'll cause a perturbation in the oil market that might people lead people to think maybe we shouldn't keep these sanctions on. So it looked like it was going to be a lot easier for them than uh, maybe it's turning out. So yes, it's easy to imagine miscalculations here. I had one thought when I saw this story, and they talked about how basically the system was set up so they would cause an outage and then in the process of restoring the, the system, uh, uh, the Ukrainians themselves would trigger the destruction of uh, the physical destruction of a number of uh, 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 infrastructure items. Uh, and I thought of a uh, biological weapon that Russians uh, developed after having promised that, they, that you know we should get rid of biological weapons. They developed a weapon that presented first as something like uh, uh, serious flu. But when you treated it with antibiotics, it turned into smallpox uh, and infected everybody. It was a kind of deliberate effort to to get at the infrastructure that uh, was designed to provide public health and to and to uh, attack that first, uh, I, and uh, this is a little that way. There's there's something in the KGB soul that that delights in making people the the agents of their own destruction. Live free and die hard. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, this is I guess this is an intelligence test. Uh, did the Israelis really? Sp- Sprinkle a bunch of uh, uh, IMSI catchers around uh, Washington? Well, nobody knows for sure. I mean, we've had leaks from inside the IC that we've attri- that the U.S. intelligence community has in- attributed the distribution of IMSI catchers, otherwise known as stingrays, um, to the Israelis. Uh, nobody outside the IC has seen any of the forensic or technical evidence that would um, make that uh, attribution legitimate. I, I expect it's true, but then, uh, as as a colleague of mine who's a uh, a general in the in the intelligence community said, if every intelligence agency in the world has not figured out that the president's use of insecure comms is subject to MC catchers stingray, they're all idiots, and they're not. Yeah. I think it. I think it's absolutely highly likely that the Israelis did it because they're very concerned about. Uh, American approaches to things like Iran. Uh, and I think it's highly likely that the Russians have uh, stingrays out and the Chinese and Lord knows, maybe even, you know, the Iranians. 
to, to hark back to what we were just talking about. Yeah, because I guess you just have to plug these things in and they start picking up basic information. All they need is electricity. Yeah. A little tuning and they can do better, but all they need is electricity. And I mean, it is – I mean, people used to kind of make fun of the idea that the president refused to use a, a secure cell phone. But in truth and in fact, this is this is the inevitable result of that choice. Yeah, although I, surely it's, it, you don't really get content this way. You get you get a, a identification. You can say, I know this phone presumably belongs to this person is in this – Quadrant, mm -hmm. uh, and you might might be able to get SMS messages. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I believe you get SMS messages and text. Uh, so I I think I mean you, you don't you obviously don't listen into the to the phone call itself, but you still know. knowing 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 where uh, fifty government officials are, knowing uh, that all important. of them are in the White House today, right. um, would be something that the Iranians would love to know. Yeah, because if we were that, planning a, exactly a, the that, that, the response to the Saudi attack that that they that they've denied, because otherwise they we'd be stuck checking with the local pizza places to see if the White House was ordering too much pizza. <laughs> Uh, these are these are uh, uh, some of your uh, yes. fellow alumni yes. yet, uh, uh, who uh, came up with this very clever idea for extracting the president's uh, um, uh, tax returns. Didn't get the tax returns, but they did get investigated, prosecuted, and, and going sentenced. to jail. Well, well, first off, I, I just want to shout out to my alma mater, Haverford College, uh, which has now produced two felons um, to add to its long string of, of otherwise well-regarded uh, graduates. Um, their plan, uh, two students, and it was, I think, probably fairly characterizable as a collegiate prank with a little bit of a twist to it, was to set up a, a federal financial aid account for Donald Trump. And if you could do so, then the system would auto-populate with uh, the tax information that uh, that the uh, student aid uh, utility would be able to pull down from the IRS. It's incomplete, but you get a lot better information. You get the top line and the deductions, Schedule A sort of thing. They failed because it turns out that, that Trump already had an account on the system. I'm guessing somebody had figured out this was a risk and that it created it. Well, either that or Donald Trump has falsely applied for financial aid for his children. And, we, and we're just learning about that now. But probably somebody had, had, uh, had plugged the hole, uh, though it's really strange that you would think that that would be the way to plug the hole instead of prohibiting the yeah. creation of accounts um, and doing a better job of verifying identity in the creation of accounts on the front end. Well, maybe. Maybe to get the loans, which are not need-based, you still have to go through this process. Uh, so, yeah, it's conceivable that uh, uh, one of his kids applied for, uh, uh, for they, college loans. Yeah, possibly. His, his daughter is at Georgetown University Law School yeah. right now, one of them, uh, Tiffany, right? So, so possibly. But either way, because an account already existed, that triggered an alert that somebody was trying to create an account for somebody who already had an account. And uh, naturally, that led to their identification arrest and consequent guilty plea. So that, how long were they online? I think they were – it looks to me as though they, they probably spent 20 minutes doing it, this. It's, it seems that's the case, though I think that the alert was later, right? It wasn't in right. – it wasn't a real-time alert. It was a, hey, somebody's been searching around in the network. But then they got the IP address and they, yes. went, they went to the, the, well, the, uh, the, the school. The, and, yeah. yeah. The, I mean it's, it's pretty easy once you, once you do it that way. They used, a, they used a system inside Founders Hall, which I used to – you know, go to all my all that time. I'm I'm kind of proud with the innovation of it, but 
But um, <laughs> I, I have to say that it's a little bit of an error, and it is going to be on their permanent record yes. in a way that uh, other college pranks usually are not. I will say that in the spirit of this, this reminds me of the most famous Haverford prank ever pulled in which um, Chevy Chase, who was a student there, but uh, actually took a cow up upstairs and cows go up but don't go down and that was the origin of the animal house uh, st uh story that with the horse that you, ah. that you saw because uh, apparently he told that story to john belushi terrific okay so we're gonna uh, uh bang through the next ones oh, the next one uh, speaking of permanent records uh shouldn't be on the permanent record we ought to apologize uh, uh we talked about an ai uh voice uh, imitation system uh, going off a Washington Post article, among others. Uh, uh, that story is now looking improbable, isn't it, Klein? Well, so the deal is, is uh, there are some researchers who are, who are looking at the story and are saying, well, hold on, maybe this wasn't as, as deep fakey as, as the original reporting suggested. You know, the idea that uh, some fraudsters were able to use an AI to mimic uh, the CEO of a company's voice and convince an employee to then transfer money to a, a bad guy account. My take on this is, yes, from a research perspective, it's a valid question to wonder about just how good the fake was and whether or not it truly constituted a you know deep fake that used neural networks to do it on the other hand though i'm not sure that it really matters because ultimately the guy coughed up the money and the fake was obviously good enough to make the trouble so uh, you know i i, I appreciate and, and totally agreement with the, the the underlying research question in terms of how well the neural network actually uh performed at the same time we're going to see a lot more of this uh, and, you know, the barrier in terms of getting people to do things that they ought not do may not quite be as high as a researcher's uh, research proposal. All right. Uh, you know, they, what they say about having a fool for a lawyer uh, and the Mar-a-Lago trespasser, the Chinese woman who was uh, uh, caught there when she started uh, saying uh, things about uh, events she was going to that were demonstrably untrue, has been has represented herself in federal uh, district court uh, and was found guilty of uh, trespass and lying to federal agents. Uh, uh, we still don't know for sure what the hell she had in mind with all the electronics she was bringing in, uh, and we probably never will. Um, uh, but uh, uh, next time uh, somebody wants to do that, they should at least make sure they've got a lawyer lined up. Con, did you spend time with uh, Glenn Gerstel's long New York Times op-ed about the future of technology and the challenge it presented to the intelligence uh, community? Yeah, so Gerstall says that the scale and speed of digital transformation is outstripping the IC and the government at large. Uh, one of the key points, he says, is that this is a problem so big that it can't be fixed with a check. We can't spend our way out of it. And that what's really required is a fundamental rethink about how we collect, manage, and use intel and how the government engages with the private sector where most of this innovation is happening. I think the bottom line here is that you know the GC is echoing things that many of us from the intelligence community and many people outside the community have been saying now for a while that you know our intelligence model is largely being disrupted. Uh, but maybe now that the, the the NSA's general counsel has said it in the New York Times, someone will listen. Yeah, it would be uh, it would be good. It was uh, you know he's a he's a thoughtful man, and uh, it was a uh, pretty deeply uh, uh, written uh, article, and clearly uh, uh, personally heartfelt. Uh, all right, last uh, uh, topic: the uh, uh, there is an encryption 
working group paper out uh, trying to and it includes some uh, uh, FBI and NSA represent uh, former officials uh, represented uh, as well as uh, industry and uh, civil society trying to set some guardrails around an uh, discussion of the impact of encryption on law enforcement. Uh, uh, this is a Carnegie paper worth reading. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, and um, uh, that reminds me that I am going to Israel to give a talk at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem on encryption. Uh, uh, they, they've got a whole day uh, program on encryption policy issues. Uh, and uh, I will be uh, uh, offering the view that that uh, I think that not you know appearances notwithstanding, uh, the ground is eroding from under industry's enthusiasm and ability to sustain end-to-end -end unbreakable encryption as a business model, uh, and that sometime in the next five years, um, uh, that ground is going to collapse on them, uh, and we're going to end up with a victory for Bill Barr and uh, the French Interior Ministry. You think it'll be a statute of some sort? I think the in way— In America. I mean, it, obviously, we're so, going they've lost the battle in France or Well, whatever. they're losing it there, and they only have to lose it for real in one country that's going to be tough enough to impose $500 million fines for failure to comply. and So uh, your prediction is, is worldwide Western liberal democracy with a small L, Some, yeah. somewhere there. Some, somebody, uh, somebody's going to do it. They have been, it. It's like watching a pack of wolves surround an elk. They get closer and closer. They take a nip. They, 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 they make a lunge and pull back. Uh, we're seeing that over and over again. Probably Australia's taken the biggest uh, uh, stride forward to uh, create a problem. But you know, the the biz the model for government here is GDPR. You only need to get it one place where the regulators are determined, and that forces compliance. And as soon as the rest of the world sees that compliance has been forced by somebody, by a country that's considered respectable, uh, I think the uh, everybody piles on, just like a wolf pack. That's that's how I, that that's that's my uh, rough analogy. And I think. As Silicon Valley gets more and more committed to doing content moderation and stamping out hate speech and Republicans online, they can't do that and still allow people to start encrypted chat groups uh, that they can't inspect, moderate, and turn off. So if 4chan can go to, to a, an encrypted chat group and carry out its, uh, its activities there, sooner or later – the the people who run that chat group, uh, who administer that chat group, are going to say we we can't allow this to continue. Uh, we don't know what's going on inside this group. And and you know, Bill Barr uh, had a story, wasn't 4chan, but it was a uh, a WhatsApp group created by the cartel for the sole purpose of talking about assassinating Mexican police officers. The law enforcement never did break into, but they caught them in other ways. You know, if that if that had been somebody who was inspiring uh, uh, folks who were imitating the New Zealand shooter, the mosque shooter, I think that there'd be a much different outcry from very different people. And at that point, uh, Silicon Valley gives up. That's my guess. Let's turn now to our interview with Joel Trackman. So let's turn to our interview now with Joel Trachtman. Uh, uh, Joel is a professor of international law and director of the LLM program at the interna uh, in international law at Tufts University's 
Fletcher School, and he's got a new paper out on the Internet of Things, the Cybersecurity Challenge to Trade and Investment. Uh, and it's a, an examination of IoT security uh, or insecurity and how nations' efforts to deal with that insecurity are going to bump into a whole bunch of international trade law. Uh, so I'm going to be interviewing Joel, but I have brought with me uh, Crib, uh, uh, Claire Schachter uh, uh, is an associate at Step 2 who has already taught me a more uh, international trade law as it relates to internet security uh, uh, than uh, I uh, ever knew. And so she's going to keep me honest, uh, Joel, as we go through this, and I'm going to invite her to weigh in. Uh, when you get deep into Article 23 bis or whatever. <laughs> uh, uh, let's start out just framing the issue. I think everybody who listens to this program already knows that uh, the security of the Internet of Things sucks. Uh, it, they're too cheap. There's too much cheap stuff. Nobody has written secure code. There's nobody with the same kind of uh, commitment to security that some of the big software companies and browsers companies who have massive revenues have. And uh, uh, consequently, we keep finding new vulnerabilities and not knowing how to fix them. The problem is that some of these vulnerabilities are in systems like uh, uh, what we heard today about uh, uh, the attack on the, um, the Ukraine grid that can cause really severe human suffering if they fail. So it is a major problem and governments are struggling to figure out how to deal with it. Uh, uh, Joel, that's where you come in. Uh, um, what are the international trade law rules that might affect what governments can do in this area? Well, the, the main thing is the World Trade Organization. It's uh, a single treaty, but it has relevant sub-agreements. The GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade relating to goods. Uh, the Technical Barriers to Trade Agreement, or TBT Agreement, relating to product standards on goods. Uh, the Government Procurement Agreement, which only has 44 members, not including China or Russia. Uh, and the General Agreement on Trade and Services, or GATS, relating to services trade. And, and they apply cumulatively in accordance with their respective terms. So they, they are basically additive, uh, uh, and they're all a bunch of restrictions on what governments can do to, uh, to deal with a uh, serious uh, regulatory problem. That's correct. More and more, the barriers to trade are not the traditional tariffs, uh, which have uh, been reduced over the life of the GATT and then the WTO to uh, low levels among wealthy countries, uh, but are non-tariff barriers like regulation of Internet of Things products. So uh, let's suppose, as is entirely possible, that uh, uh, the U.S. government says, you know, there are certain kinds of products, maybe things that go into uh, nuclear uh, power control systems that we just are not willing to buy from Russia or China uh, because we don't trust their governments and we think they would uh, do everything they can to uh, um, insert subtle flaws that could be triggered later by a hacker. Uh, how big a problem of that is that under international trade law? 
It, it does raise uh, important issues. You know, that's uh, kind of the Huawei 5G case. And uh, the issues that it raises are uh, mostly about discrimination. Are you unfairly discriminating against uh Chinese products or Chinese services, and and the and the core question is what does it mean to be fair? And 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 the law speaks about treating um, imported products uh, that are like products less favorably, or imported services or service providers that are like that are comparable sufficiently, less favorably. So. Uh, there's there's a, there's a start. We have to treat like products alike. We can't discriminate against them just because they come from abroad. But suppose uh, the U.S. government says, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, but a Chinese made and designed product that could have these consequences if it fails just isn't like one made in St. Louis. Right. It's it's true. But, you know, that broad rule, I think, would be both under-inclusive and over-broad. You know, so most things aren't really from a single place anymore. So that thing made in St. Louis is going to have components from China, from uh, Australia, from uh, Brazil. And uh, even if they're produced in the United States, sophisticated goods are produced through complex supply chains. And I know the Department of Defense is, uh, is quite worried about this with components sourced from many places. And, and so there, and there could be service providers or workers who are um, untrustworthy or, or saboteurs in transit. So, so that's, uh, it's, it's underbroad. Uh, but it's also um, over-inclusive. There could be a good produced in Russia or China. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's more dangerous. It could be produced by a U.S. company in Beijing uh, under strict supervision by U.S. personnel in a way that we could be satisfied. And I think it's important to recognize the the like product standard under WTO rules can encompass things like the consumer's preferences and views on the product. So while it sounds, you know, that it might be a fairly, you know, narrow inquiry, it can encompass things like if you considered a particular product to be less secure for various reasons, a WTO panel, you know, would weigh that factor. Well, if you as the consumer, but so, suppose you want to protect consumers from themselves and you don't want them to buy the cheapest product and then later be subject to uh, uh, an attack by another nation. Right. I think that, that consumer preferences as reflected in government policy you know, okay. might also be taken into account. Okay. And, I, you know, it, it is, of course, no regulation solves the problem perfectly. But uh, um, I, I think that uh, people who want to regulate this would say, well, let's solve the biggest problem, which is this, these products coming completely designed and uh, sealed up in the factory in China without any insight uh, into what's inside uh, there. Uh, that's a problem we can identify. Um, and if you tell me, well, maybe you have a problem with uh, some – Chinese components inside some of your computers will solve that problem next. But don't tell me that until I've solved that problem, I can't address uh, the greater uh, risk. I suppose that's right. Unlike products, the you know the the thing is that a reference to consumer preferences leaves out rationales for regulation 
for regulation, as you, you pointed out, Stuart, you know, consumers might be ignorant about the risks. Uh, they also might not be the ones that bear the risk or there may be a collective action problem among the consumers. So there are good reasons for regulation that wouldn't be reflected in determining the likeness of products. So let's uh, – I, I, I should take one step back. This is not like most international law where basically you can say, you know, any law professor uh, worth his salt can claim that anything the U.S. government is doing is a violation of international law. This is a system that is actually enforced or has been enforced more or less at the U.S. government's insistence. Uh, trade representatives for years wanted to make sure that all of these codes were as legalistic and legally enforceable as possible. Uh, may be changing, but uh, there is a whole mechanism for uh, forcing governments to adhere to these agreements. That's correct. Um, in 1995, uh, we uh, switched from voluntary dispute settlement to mandatory dispute settlement to having a system of uh, independent panels and then an independent appellate body serving as an appeals court uh, to interpret these treaties. And as you know, the United States has grown dissatisfied with that appellate body. The United States is more interested right now in the exercise of unconstrained power rather than um, sharing power and coming to reciprocal agreements where others are restrained and, and we are too. Yeah, I, I suspect that the USDR critique is that uh, uh, the appellate body and a lot of the uh, panels that make up decisions here are basically people who learned to hate the United States uh, uh, as part of their job and also when they went to Stanford for grad school. Uh, that would be the critique, but it would be false. <laughs> well, did they go to the Fletcher School instead to learn that? <laughs> Perhaps. So the U.S. has been on the receiving end of a whole bunch of claims that its acts are inappropriately protectionist and uh, violative of GATT, and countries have imposed serious sanctions on the United States as a result of the U.S. losing those uh, uh, panel decisions, right? That's true. And the United States has won um, also uh, against other countries and has imposed uh, retaliation against other countries. So it's a system that prevents trade wars by funneling disputes into um, a third party, independent, uh, good faith dispute settlement system so that you don't have the kind of trade war that we're currently experiencing with China. So how come China isn't already taking the U.S. to, uh, to GATT over uh, its existing measures, let alone IoT regulation? China is uh, bringing the United States to the WTO over uh, the uh, Section 301 uh, under 1974 Act measures and is arguing that the United States has both violated the substantive rules but also violated the rule that says when you've got a gripe, you've got to go to the multilateral system. Uh, you, can't, uh, you can't act unilaterally. One of the purposes, as, as you suggested, of the change in 1995 was to get the United States to stop acting unilaterally under Section 301 of, of the 1974 Act and to go multilateral. And that's uh, that, that rule is contained in Article 23 of the dispute settlement understanding. And the United States has flagrantly violated that, in my view, um, in its actions against China. So why – but if, if – 
China gets the authority uh, to uh, retaliate against the United States, of course, they already are. So um, are we uh, in a situation where you know, uh, imposing IoT regulation that violates the GATT is nonetheless going to uh, uh, produce uh, the sort of tit-for-tat uh, retaliation we've already seen uh, with a president who has said famously, you know, uh, trade wars are easy, easy to win if you've got a big enough uh, trade deficit. Right. Uh, so so um, China has responded, and its response is also a violation of that same provision. Um, and, and so uh, you're right that uh, with uh, barriers to Huawei equipment or uh, IoT products, uh, the United States started doing that. Um, China could retaliate. We could have a, you know, a, a wild west, an unconstrained uh, trade war between the United States and China. Uh, or they could refer these things to dispute settlement at the world trade organization. And there, the questions would be, as we started to um, to say, whether these things are like products, whether they're treated less favorably, and then whether uh, some of the general exceptions or the security exceptions, the specialized security exceptions would be available. Those uh, security exceptions used to be viewed as, um, largely by the United States, but other countries accepted it as self-judging as non-justiciable. Uh, as you know, we now have a, GAT, a WTO panel decision in the Russia traffic and transit case uh, from earlier this year uh, that said it's not self-judging and there are parameters under which your action can be judged. And, and we'll see how the United States responds to that. So the, this is this is pretty significant because the U.S. does a whole bunch of stuff that uh, um, interferes with trade on grounds of national security, uh, imposes sanctions and has export controls and the like, uh, and it does it for, uh, you know, by and large legitimate national security ends. And it has always assumed, well, we can do that because there's a national security exception to the trade agreements we've entered into. How realistic is that basic view? It's now been challenged, uh, and so it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not something where you just utter the words security exception and the case goes away, at least you know, according to this panel decision, which was not appealed to the appellate body. And it could be that you know later on there's an appellate body decision that says, no, it, it truly is self-judging. I, I doubt that, um, that that would be the, the answer. So, so, uh, so bef before we do that, let me let me ask Claire. I, my memory is that the argument that this is self-judging is a very aggressive bit of lawyering. Um, I think you could you could say that the U.S. argument really hinges on this language it considers, which is in Article Twenty One, and they sort of extrapolate from that that the entire provision should be self-judging. The tricky thing there is that. There are actually some pretty clear circumstances laid out, objective, factual circumstances. Is there a war? Is there an emergency going on? Does this relate to the supply of a military establishment? And the idea that these sort of objective subparagraphs would have been included if the whole provision was self-judging, well, that's it's hard to reconcile. Joel, you agree? 
I definitely agree. And the panel uh, made exactly the interpretation that Claire just referred to and said, you know, it can't be self-judging if there are parameters for its use. Uh, if, if it were truly self-judging, the authors would not have had to specify parameters for, for its use. So what are the parameters that would apply to regulating the Internet of Things? Well, um, in Article 21B2, um, um, there is a reference to, as Claire said, uh, things that are considered necessary for the protection of essential security interests relating to the traffic in arms uh, and implements of war. And so here the question is, is that's it. That, that's it. That's the old, that's that that's the entire scope of the uh, 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 the the protection that the that national security measures gets. It has to no, be. No, I, oh, okay. I was reading. I was reading the part that's uh, one part that's relevant. The okay. other part that's relevant uh, is. 21B3, which relates to actions taken in time of war or other emergency in international relations. So you can see that the interpretative questions are, what is an implement of war? Is an IOT, uh, is, is that controller of a nuclear power plant you referred to at the beginning, is that an implement of war? Uh, what was intended at the time, and regardless of what was intended at the time, can we see uh, that that controller as an implement of war today so that article 21 b2 applies so that the united states can say um, this relates to the traffic in implements of war uh, second was the action taken in time of an emergency in international relations and this has uh, of course an analog in the domestic sphere where um, emergency powers um, can be quite broad and and so the definitional question, which will have to be um, elaborated, is to what extent is the growing concern about IoT devices in self-driving cars and in industrial controllers and in other high-risk settings an emergency in international relations? So it, it's, it's, it's a tough question, but, but there may be ways that a judge could answer it. A panel in, in in this case, right? Correct. Would have Correct. to say um, yes. We agree that even though there hasn't been a disaster yet, and uh, uh, whatever emergency is coming is uh, emerging slowly, we think this is an emergency, and not only that, an emergency in international relations, uh, which is not you know you can say yes, international relations are at, at work here, but uh, it's a little hard to. So say this is a measure aimed at that emergency. And, and I think another challenge would be the way in which the panel in the Russia traffic and transit case talked about what kind of interests would, would arise from the emergency. And it was pretty clear that these would be you know, defense and military interests or law and public order interests. But that, that could still be interpreted as a fairly high so bar. So public order is uh, uh, covers a lot of sins. Public order could cover a lot of sins. I think we'll have to wait and see whether um, countries try and expand the parameters of those I would have terms. thought that you know, public order is about law enforcement uh, and ensuring that, the, that, that good order is maintained. And certainly if uh, nuclear power plants start melting down, it's going to be hard to maintain good order. I, I, I think, think that's, that's definitely right. There's 
you know, there's some interpretation of this under the GATS where they make clear that it has to be sort of a genuine and sufficiently serious threat uh, to a fundamental interest, which would still, you know, potentially cover the kinds of measures we're, we're talking about. This, this, this assumes then that, that a couple of diplomats in uh, uh, Geneva are going to say to the United States, you know, I don't know that that's such a bad thing. Come on. You know, it's not fundamental. Uh, so, no, uh, you can't do that. I think you've touched on the key thing here. There is going to be a lot of reluctance to, to second guess members who actually take the time to articulate what their essential security interests are and to offer some kind of defensible rationale. Yeah. So this 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 is one reason why the U.S. just wanted it always to be self-judging, because they were uh, determined that it would not be Geneva judged. Indeed. Okay. Uh, so one of the things the U.S. has done, uh, Joel, to prevent Geneva judging uh, is they've stopped approving uh, nominations to the appellate body. And I gather that's going to bring the appellate body to a grinding halt pretty soon. Yeah, the, that's correct. The appellate body will be unable to decide cases uh, in December. And uh, this is, you know, mostly a concern about um, anti-dumping law and uh, the United States practice of skewing the outcome of anti-dumping cases through through a, a practice called zeroing. Um, and, uh, and the United States uh, did indeed feel that it didn't get what it bargained for in that uh, WTO negotiation, which was a uh, certain latitude um, to have its own interpretations of that anti-dumping law. So that, that's, a, that's a part of it. There are other things the United States has complained about, including the use of precedent, including the adaptation of the procedures to just deal with practical issues. Um, and, and the United States is, um, as you said, blocking through this rule of consensus decision-making the appointment of new judges such that it's slowly strangling the WTO appellate body and, and uh, eliminating its ability to hear cases. And other um, countries, uh, other places like the European Union are looking for jury-rigged solutions so that they can keep having um, uh, final decision-making and, uh, and appellate decision making in this trade law area. So this, this is the, what's, what's clever about this from the U.S. point of view is if you lose a panel case, you can just say, I appeal. I want to go to the appellate body, which isn't functioning. So uh, until the appellate body rules on my appeal, nobody gets to retaliate against me. Is that really how it works? That's correct. Well, nobody gets to lawfully retaliate against you. Now, this, in a way, sends us back to the pre-1995 world of voluntary dispute settlement. And, and the surprising thing there is that we had pretty good compliance with the GATT rules under that regime. So this, as, as my late colleague Bob Hudek called it, is a, a diplomat's jurisprudence where you know, there might be some room for adjustment and for recognition, but it assumes that states are cooperative and diplomatic and recognize that rules are reciprocal. So if the United States says we've got a blank check to do any 
thing we want under the security exception. We have to recognize that our trade partners can do the same thing, and that might be disappointing to our exporters. But not for not to the people who want to regulate IoT security because the uh, the overhang of people saying, you know, that doesn't sound so bad to me here in Geneva, um, is real and and not something that can be addressed until there's actually a panel decision. Uh, but knowing that uh, uh, there can't be something that is effectively binding that says you can't do that probably frees people up. You know, they're operating under the sort of Damocles, but they could adopt security regulation now and uh, uh, hope that uh, either the appellate body doesn't come back or uh, they don't lose the case when it's finally brought. Yes, there's another solution, and it's the solution that the European Union followed in connection with its uh, rules about beef hormones. Uh, they lost a case in 1996 at the very beginning of the WTO, and they, they still haven't complied with that ruling, uh, and, and they've engaged in a kind of civil disobedience uh, where the rules here say, you know, the other countries can retaliate against you. So Canada and the United States are continuing to retaliate against against the European Union for its restrictions on imports of hormone-fed beef. And there's no additional penalty for that civil disobedience. So what I would say and, and weren't is... We, weren't we, wasn't the U.S. paying off Brazil to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars in order not to comply with a sugar ruling? That's true too. So, uh, so, so the United States has uh, bought off uh, Brazil, and uh, the European Union has bought off the United States. And you might say that's as it should be, uh, especially in this security area. We need order. We need some way of deciding what's permissible and what's not, what's sincere security and what's not. We might get it wrong. We might disagree with what you, the United States, want. And if that's true, uh, you can pay um, and go along as you wish. This isn't um, like domestic law against murder. It's more like uh, uh, a kind of tort law where you have uh, efficient breach, you might say. So looking at that, uh, I'm going to ask you and Claire both. Uh, if the U.S. were to adopt aggressive regulation of the Internet of Things and the supply chain – uh, that distinctly disfavored Chinese and Russian products uh, uh, because of the inability to determine whether, in fact, they had been interfered with. Uh, where do we end up under the GATT? Do we end up with a vindication of U.S. policy or do we end up with a tort judgment against us that we sort of negotiate along with uh, uh, pork purchases, uh, or do we end up uh, with the U.S. being told, no, you can't do that? Well, I think, um, as we were kind of alluding to earlier, you know, there would be a number of questions we'd have to answer along the way. So and it would, would depend a lot on how the measure was designed, whether it would be inconsistent with some of these fundamental obligations we're talking about. We might be able to defend the measure under some of the general exceptions, which you know offer other you know some broader language than the security exceptions. But ultimately, I think that this will be a a matter for the administration to articulate. I was saying in a, in a defensible way what it's trying to do, 
Oh, good, and, good, bad. <laughs> well, but I think what's what's been interesting is this this current administration really is kind of hasn't made much of an effort, and that's been what's of a concern to a lot of members. They're sort of been you know help us help you here. Right. So I would lean on the side of if you know they came forward and explained you know a, a articulated security rationale that was somewhat defensible, they might be in better shape. Um, but as we said, there are there are serious constraints imposed by by Article 21. So you could end up with measures that were found to be not justifiable under that provision. So, Joel, you wrote you wrote a uh, uh, 40 or 50 page paper on this. Uh, how do you think this issue gets resolved, the tension between trade law and uh, IOT security? Yes. Well, I, I think Claire's answer is is correct. You know, this is the kind of the 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 main issue in globalization, in trade generally. It's the relationship between national autonomy for a variety of reasons, and uh, market access for others. And uh, you know, we use national treatment under that technical barriers to trade agreement. We use proportionality, uh, or we have uh, special uh, rules relating to harmonization, special rules requiring respect for international standards. And we try to manage uh, those kinds of things. I think, you know, the the jurisprudence as it exists today, as, as we've suggested, um, both in um, the anti-discrimination rules themselves, uh, the national treatment and most favored nation treatment rules in the general exceptions, uh, which relate to things like safety, protection of, of humans, um, um, uh, deceptive practices and the security exceptions, they're all somewhat uncertain. And they're all sensitive, as Claire said, to the way that you design your measure. And, uh, and, and the hope is that the people in the United States government uh, responsible for cybersecurity are working with the USTR uh, and trying to design their measure in a way that is uh, most defensible. And one way of doing that, by the way, is to propose to other countries a cooperative regime uh, so that what you're doing is seen as not arbitrary because arbitrariness can be a defect, at least under the general exceptions. And so, you know, this jurisprudence in its uncertainty might be said to hang like a sort of Damocles and uh, the, the parties, the United States on the one side and maybe China. China on the other side are driven to negotiate under that uncertainty and come up with a regime that they say that this this will settle things. And then you can either do that on a freestanding basis or incorporate it into the WTO. Okay. Well, I I think that's that's great advice. We should be drafting our Internet of Things regulations so that we uh, are proof against a claim that it's purely protectionist uh, and we demonstrate the nature of the concern and what we're uh, trying to do to make it fair. Uh, and we probably should be working to find as many governments as possible who also have doubts about uh, installing uh, uh, Chinese-made uh, controllers in their nuclear power plants so that we are all agreed on some basic approaches to the problem, which presumably will mean that they'll be a little more supportive when we get to Geneva. Um, uh, so 
Joel, uh, uh, thanks very much. Claire, thank you for bailing me out as necessary. Uh, um, this has uh, been episode 278 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, please don't forget to uh, send guest suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, I have been pretty good about tweeting uh, uh, possible topics uh, so you can follow me at Stuart Baker uh, uh, as I do that uh, uh, and if you could go on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher and give us a rating. Uh, next week I am gone. I'm going to be uh, hiking uh, and uh, speaking in Israel on uh, encryption policy uh, and the blockchain is taking over the podcast. Uh, uh, so look for us uh, uh, the week after that, uh, returning uh, once again to provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 